I'm Peter Samuelson. Today, we're going to talk about the strange behavior of film stars, my career as the producer of over two dozen films now, and what I've been able to do in society as a serial philanthropic entrepreneur using the same toolkit, but trying to make the world better for seriously ill children, the homeless. And maybe along the way, we'll talk about moral challenges of living in 2021 and how we can chip away at them and make, however modest, an impact, which by lifting up the lives of other people, we lift up our own. Welcome back to part two of this delicious conversation with Peter Samuelson here on Curiosity Bites. Peter Samuelson is the co-founder and president of First Star, CEO of Filmco, uh, Media Inc. Uh, those are movie companies. Uh, Peter Samuelson is a serial pro-social entrepreneur. Um, he has founded the Starlight Children's Foundation. He has been part of uh, Star Bright he did with Steven Spielberg and a bunch of others. We're going to talk more about those powerful, powerful uh, organizations doing absolutely amazing work to make a difference in the world. Um, we talked about in part one, we talked about uh, Peter's background, where he came from. We talked a lot about uh, going to university and the impact of going to university and being the only person in the family who'd ever done that and the breaking through of that sort of glass ceiling idea that, you know, we don't go, and then suddenly we do. And Peter was saying that he was the first to go to university in his family, but there was a whole swath of people who went directly afterwards because that that became possible. So, uh, and then, of course, we talked about the transition from, from going to university to becoming uh, a Hollywood producer. You know, we talked about that transition now, so from... Uh, Cambridge and you living in the UK, going to Cambridge and then uh, working on movie sets like Le Mans. Um, did you get to meet Steve McQueen, by the way? Yeah, I, 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 I was often his interpreter as he tried to chat up uh, innocent <laughs> French young ladies. I was the idiot sitting there saying, Mr. McQueen thinks you have beautiful eyes. And then at <laughs> a, a certain point he would go, uh, and uh, I would exit stage left. And what happened after that, God only knows. Well, actually, you we can pretty know. much work it out. Yeah. Yeah, we can work it out. How was he? How was Steve McQueen? Do you remember? Um, he certainly had screen charisma. Yeah. I mean, there, there are just human beings um, yeah. whose stardom is based not particularly on range of acting ability or their training, um, but more on the fact that the camera loves them yes, and that they have a compelling presence um, in film. And is that what McQueen was? And, and I think that uh, McQueen certainly had that. He really only had one acting style, you know, which was the slightly furrowed brow a bit inscrutable um, mm. man of few words kind of thing. Um, it was a mad film, the Le Mans film, because it really, I mean, we never had a, a, a proper script. Um, really? The whole way through making the film. It's the only time, I, I knew nothing at the time. It was my right. first real job 
on a film. There's this thing that uh, you prepare in the production office um, with the first assistant director uh, and distribute to the whole 200-person crew um, kind of under their doors in the hotels the night before. And it, it says, this is what we're doing tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, this is where you have to pitch up and at what time. And if yeah. you're the prop guy, bring these props with you and wardrobe and here are the call times for the different actors and so on and so forth. And it always says what scene numbers you're filming. There's actually a box where it yeah. says scene numbers and it lists them. It's the only time in my entire 40-something year career I've ever seen call sheets consistently where in the scene numbers box, it just says to be determined. And we would show up at a location at 6.30 in the morning and the um, the writers would be in a trailer typing <laughs> their heart out on, you know, Olivetti typewriters. And uh, eventually they would emerge and we would film something. It was the most profligate, wasteful, um, discombobulated way of making a film. And it, it came from the top down. The production company was Steve's company, Solar, oh. and he really didn't give a toss about narrative, you know, and characters and that kind of thing. He just wanted to make a film about fast cars uh, in the Le Mans race. And the film to this day, I think, is has some of the absolutely best footage of cars driving very fast around yeah. the track. Yeah. I mean, we, we built extraordinary car mounts. It was before the time of computer-generated imaging. So we we did it all with a real camera on the side of a real car doing 220 miles an hour down the Mulzan Strait next to another car and trying not to kill anybody. Um and so it gets an A plus as if you like documentary footage of <laughs> extraordinarily dangerous fast driving in racing cars. Um, in terms of narrative fiction, characterization, um, I don't know, does it get a D or an F? Um, it's, it's a very strange film. It's a documentary dressed up as narrative as fiction right. w w as, as a drama, which it really isn't. But if you're interested in fast cars, I highly recommend it. I remember, I remember, I remember seeing it, and I remember seeing uh, another one that predated it that was also mind blowing to me, which was Grand Prix. Yes, the John, the John Frankenheimer film, absolutely. Right. And, and being in awe of, of the, you know, the way that that was shot today. That's TV. It's basic TV. But back in the day, it was like, oh my god, you know, it was like, yeah, wow. And I was not even into cars. Well, I would say, you know, I, I hate to be the the old filmmaker and in any way be critical of the young filmmakers, but I think to make a film about cars that, you know, are frequently dri driven faster than 200 miles an hour and to do that without computer-generated um, effects uh, is a whole higher skill. I mean, we we were building rigs we had a uh, a ford gt40 with a domed camera an ari 2c camera mounted behind and between 
the driver's seat and the passenger seat. And in the passenger seat was the camera operator, who, as I remember, it had bicycle grips to control the camera and pedals. Wow. And he, he could pan and tilt and t- obviously turn it on and off. And he could also zoom the lens in and out. And, um, um, and he could see through the video assist very early, 1970 video assist, you know, the very earliest days of that. And we got the most extraordinary uh, effects. And we didn't actually kill anybody, although there were some, um, there were some people who, yeah, there were. And, um, you know, it was a mad film. I was yeah. 18, I was 18 years old, barely out of school. Um, so uh, there was someone in charge of track safety who wasn't very good at it. And poor old <laughs> D- David Piper, one of the drivers, lost a leg because the way that it was set up was that the fire engine couldn't, when it saw a plume of smoke from a crash, it couldn't go to the crash by driving against the racing cars. It couldn't drive up the verge and get there quickly. It had to go all the bloody way around, you know, which took 10, 12 minutes. Meanwhile, there's poor old David Piper and a couple of guys with fire extinguishers, and they couldn't get him out, and he, he lost his leg. So what would what would an incredibly badly organized film do? They would say, oh, right, well, we'll fire the head of track safety. Now, we need someone to replace him. They have to speak both English and French uh, because, you know, they've got to tell everybody what to do and, you know, put their foot down and... Um, who have we got that speaks? Oh, well, Peter will do it. So there I was. I remember my father, bless him, came and visited and realized that his son, age 18, was in charge of track safety. And he went and shouted at the producer and said, how the hell can you do this? Someone's going to die. It'll curse my son for the rest of his life. <laughs> and um, But my father went back to London and I carried on as the head of track safety. And I might say nobody got hurt after I was in charge, but it was very difficult because one of the big things that I had to do was to make sure if we had 25 racing cars, we would only close down, you know, most of the Le Mans track is public roads. So you could only close down, say, a mile or two miles at a time. Sections, yeah. Uh, sections, which meant that if you wanted to do the shot again, which you always want to do the shot again, you would have to turn the cars around, take them back to first positions, turn them around again. And the the issue was do not allow the racing cars to go back towards the beginning until you are sure that all 25 of them have arrived from the beginning. Otherwise, you'll have a head-on collision. And what made that difficult was that Steve McQueen, who was often driving one of the cars, didn't think that anyone, especially not me, age 18, with a big red flag, um, should stop him from driving back whenever he thought he should drive back. And he would have driven not at full speed. He might have only done 100 miles an hour back towards the beginning. But I was damned. He, uh, he, I, I mean, we would, I would stand in front of the car and he'd be revving the engine, rah, 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 and he'd be yelling at me out of the window, it's overheating. And I just stood there and, and stared him down. I, I mean, I was only 18, um, so I guess I was not experienced enough to know that you cower before film 
fame. So I, I just wouldn't, he would have had to run me over to get past me. And then eventually I'd count the 25th car or whatever it was, and I'd stand aside and he would be, be pissed off and zoom off. Leading so the I rest mean, that's of fascinating. Cars. You pissed him off by stopping him on the track. And yet you were, you were his, uh, uh, de Bergerac with, uh, with French. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. The chicks for him. Yeah. <laughs> well, they were, they, that, that, that film was a magnet for every young person in Europe who heard, oh, it's a Steve McQueen film, and they'll they'll give you three meals a day and you can be an extra and they'll pay you, you know, 200 francs a day for just standing there most of the time. And so we had, you know, college students and other young people from all over Europe came to Le Mans and um, stayed in tents in the infield and so forth. I mean, it was a phenomenon. And I learned um, a lot. <laughs> I, I, I learned a lot by watching people make horrible mistakes and trying not to make them myself. If that would have been a more organized movie, you'd have probably got a job, which is fine, but you'd have been stuck in a narrow piece of that. And you got to experience a much wider range that I'm sure actually ended up serving you as you went into full movie production, you know, in your own way. Well, yes, because actually, you know, we talked earlier in part one about, um, you know, the, 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 the Renaissance yeah. man who knew everything about everything because there wasn't that much to know and that we've all become much more specialized. Being a film producer actually is being a generalist. Yeah. You, 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 are, um, you need to know enough about cinematography, production design, uh, editing, script writing, acting, directing, and so forth. You don't actually have to do those things, but you, you know, you're the person who's hired all those people, and you need to know when the uh, director of photography is bamboozling you and has ordered more lenses than he or she really needs. Mm-hmm. Why do you need that? You have that one. Um, you, 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 you need to have a certain level of knowledge. Um, and that, uh, yeah, I, I got that start on that film. What comes to mind is a fantastic story. Um, so when Steven, I got Steven Spielberg to be the uh, chairman of Starbright. Right. Um, and we said, well, there's this new thing called the internet and we're going to link together seriously your children. And we got, uh, um, you know, I, I, I would write letters, Stephen would sign them. And we, the problem was Stephen would not ask anybody for money. Um, really? Well, because he was sort of a bit bashful. He right. gave us a lot of money, well into seven figures himself, but he wouldn't actually go. And once we had him as the chairman, the people, the people, the people wouldn't meet with me because they, you know, they I, they were thinking, well, what am I, chopped liver? I, I don't get to meet <laughs> Spielberg. I get Samuelson. Who the hell is he? So I said, you know, I think we need to get someone and make them like chair of the. You stay where you are as chair of the whole thing, but we need someone to be chair of the fundraising effort. So we thought, well, who would be really good? And we said, well, someone fearless who will go and meet with anyone and tell them to donate money. And so we said, well, you know, it was right after the Gulf War. And uh, I don't remember who suggested uh, General Norman Schwarzkopf. 
But that seemed like a really good idea. So we did a letter to Storming Norman, and um, I was invited to go meet him in uh, Tampa, Florida. Very strange experience. You get in the elevator and it stops between floors because he's got the penthouse and a voice says to you, could you hold your ID up to the camera and then asks you a few questions. And if you pass muster, it lurches upwards again and you get out and you find yourself sitting with General Norman Schwarzkopf. He he stood up to shake hands. I, I mean, he was the biggest man, sort of like. Oh, really? Yeah, like like sort of Shrek or something it was. Um, and <laughs> very, very erudite, highly intelligent man. On his desk, disconcertingly, was the biggest revolver I've ever seen. It was a revolver that must have been two and a half, three feet long with a big, long barrel, but it was a revolver with a trigger. And I said to him, is that, you know, because of terrorists or like, why, why, why do you have that there on your desk? And he said, no, not terrorists. They can't get up here. It's for journalists. So um, there I am, and I'm pitching my little heart out, and I'm saying, you know, in Starbright, we have all these specialists, back again to the original point of the podcast, uh, we have all these specialists. We have medical doctors, we have child psychiatrists, and we have pediatricians, and we have surgeons, and then we have all the IT people. We've got software engineers and hardware engineers and all the Silicon Valley mob, and then we have um, Hollywood, you know, we've got producer, director, actor, writer, and our job, if you join us, General, is to be in the middle and make them all cooperate on a common goal. And he said, um, Mr. Samuelson, what do you know about the United States Army? And I said, honestly, hand on heart, I know, assume nothing, because uh, that would be pretty accurate. He said, well, in the U.S. Army, when you muster in, you don't just get a rank, you get a specialty. You're a rifleman, you're an infantryman, you're a signalman, you're a cook, you're a driver, whatever the hell you are, and it's a badge that you have. And you keep that throughout your career until if you're very, very good, if you show high leadership skills, they make you a general. And in the ceremony where they give you your general stars, they take away your specialty pin because you are no longer a specialist. You are a general. And I thought, huh, that's why generals are called generals. Of course, because by (laughs) trial and error over thousands of years of running an army, if you put a specialist in charge, They would have, you know, excellent arrows or something, but they'd be crap at everything else and they'd forget to feed the army or give them horses or something. If you used a specialist uh, and not a generalist, everyone would die. So by trial and error, they realized, no, who we need to have running our army, thank you very much, is a generalist. And we will call them a general. And that's where the word comes from. So I didn't know that. Yeah, so what a producer does on a film, we are the general. 
we are the general. We we may not be uh, a competent cinematographer, but we know enough about cinematography to make sure he has his right lenses and the camera cranes good and all the rest of it. And um, that's what we do. And, of course, that skill set, that toolkit of being a film producer, as I discovered when I started Starlight and then Starbright and then First Star and then EDAR and then Aspire, it's exactly what you need to address a previously completely unmet huge social challenge. You know, it's the same thing. Is this idea big enough? Let's house, educate, and encourage high school-age foster kids on the campus of a university. Go. Is that idea big enough to give it years of your life? Right. Uh, so you have that's what you do with a film. Is yeah. this script any good? Am I actually going to put thousands of hours into making this thing? Okay, who's directing it? Who's writing the script? What's the budget? Where are we making it? Um, who's in it? Where is the distribution? Is it any good? Do we need to change the edit of it to make it better? Did they laugh in the comedy? And on and on and on. That's what you do as the generalist, which is the, the film producer. And you, you, you marshal an ocean uh, of specialists, you know, any given lunchtime, on a good-sized film, you're, you're, you're sometimes feeding hundreds of people, but even without the extras, you're feeding, you know, 125, 150, something like that. And you know that because the caterers count the paper plates and that's how they charge you for that lunch. Yep. So there's always at the end of it all the dirty paper plates and they're going one, two, three, that's 10. And um, so you know how many people it takes to make a film, and it is, it's – 100, 150, 200, um, even if you're being very, very careful. Yep. And um, how do you get them all to uh, work together to a common goal, which would be we're making this script, we want to make it really well, and we have to be finished by Thursday week. Right. And we can't spend more money than we have in the account. Right. That's the job of the Producer, so you're the generalist keeping them focused on it. And turns out it actually equips you pretty well with inventing new solutions to old social problems, which I've, you know, my, my, my best experiences are not making films. I enjoy making films, but to, you know, sit and watch a class of graduating foster kids or to see seriously ill children smile in a hospital when they, they're in a grim situation or to watch a whole family uh, enjoy themselves when one of the kids is seriously ill and they knit themselves back together. These, these are the great joys. And um, that's my privilege. It, I think it's, um, it's the meaning of life, actually, giving back. Yeah. I, the meaning of life is not the Monty Python one, although that is it's pretty um, good. It's pretty good. <laughs> uh, the meaning of life is actually taking your toolkit, your skill set, and from the very beginning of your career, it doesn't have to be your career, but under your blotter, put back, help, do, volunteer. Uh, if you're a leader, lead. If you're not a leader, follow. Um, but it is about that commitment to 
you know, for me, Lee, I've said this in every part of the work that I've done over the years is that leader, leadership is about service. And, and if you're, if you're not, if you're too big and too important to serve, then you're never going to be a leader. I'm sorry. You may have the title, but you never actually be a leader, which is a vastly different thing. Uh, now in the, as in the next section, I want to talk about the transference of where you've made this 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 shift and you you know you've taken everything you've learned in the movie world and you've you've moved it over you've made this uh, amazing movie called foster boy um and it really is side by side with the work that you're doing um and it's just it's not just one thing i mean of course you've done many of these things you've made many movies as we talked about but you've created these different foundations doing different things including from the uh helping with the homeless situation to working a lot with these kids. Um, I want to start when we come back after the break, I want to talk about uh, what inspired the movie Foster Boy and how that ties into what it is you've been doing. So again, before we, before we end off this particular part, part two of the show, again, please tell our audience, our viewers, our listeners, where they can find out more about you, Peter, and, and your foundations. So the easiest master website, uh, which we built just so that everything was in one place, because there's kind of a lot of it, uh, is www.samuelson.la. It's not a .com. It's not a .org. It's samuelson.la. And if you go there, but beyond that, you can just Google my name, Peter Samuelson, and there'll be much more than you ever wanted uh, to see. It's, it's sort of a bit endless. I'm, I'm daunted by it myself. All right. Well, uh, thank you, Peter, for being with us for part two of the show. We'll come back for part three of the show. We'll be examining uh, some, of, uh, some of the movie work that Peter has done and particularly how that movie work has transferred over into uh, what we call what he calls um, pro-social philanthropy and um, and really making a difference in foundations. It's pretty powerful stuff, and I really hope you'll stay tuned because you know there's a lot of talk about what Hollywood is, and um, a lot of it has not been particularly positive. Certainly, in the last 10, 15 years, um, but you know. It's really important to know that in every space, there is always people who are shining a light in the darkness and the power can be used for positive and for good. And Peter Samuelson and the foundations that he's built uh, and the work that he's doing is certainly in there. And that's why we wanted to have these conversations on Curiosity Bites. So we're going to come back for part three of our delicious conversation with Peter Samuelson, movie producer, and as I said, uh, pro-social philanthropy entrepreneur. We'll be back in just one click. Stay with us and stay curious, my friends. Stay curious. Stay curious.